this week on the Back Table Podcast. And that group said, no, we have interventional radiologists. Don't give those guys privileges. They, you know, we are contracted to provide those services. The hospital, I think it was the CNO, actually. The CNO said, you know, we're just looking back in on our files. You guys haven't ever per performed a single interventional radiology case at this hospital. And there they said, well, that's still, we have the exclusive rights to, to do that. And then he said, well, these guys are bringing cases to the hospital. What problem do you have with them doing this? And they said, oh, they've been denied privileges all over town. The CNO said, yeah, according to them, you guys have been denying their privileges everywhere. Um, so eventually that, you know, like Pat said, if you kind of probe a little bit, the stupidity of the situation will start to kind of become the main theme of the conversation. And then you would hope that clearer heads prevail. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. Our listeners asked, and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on episode pages at Backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend on a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Now, on with the episode. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce special guests, Patrick Suter and Dr. Preston Smith. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Sure. And so um, it's a very important topic we're going to talk about today. First, let's just start with some intros. Uh, Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're at? Yeah, I'm uh, actually in Dallas, Texas. I'm uh, of counsel with the law firm of Gray Reed. We have offices in Houston and Waco. And also, I'm the adjunct professor of healthcare studies at Baylor University School of Law and with the Robbins Institute for Health Policy and Leadership at Baylor University. Practiced healthcare law my entire career going into my 31st year of doing so, representing primarily physicians and, and uh, other types of, of providers, and I'm board certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization in, in healthcare law. Great. Thank you for that. And Preston, I've known you for at least three or four years now. And uh, just a little background, you know, Preston brought this up that would make for a great podcast topic is, uh, you know, exclusive contracts, even, you know, we're going to get into non-competes a little bit, but Preston, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you've been, where you're at, what kind of inspired you to want to talk about this? Sure. So I, uh, I trained at Medical College of Wisconsin uh, in Milwaukee, and then I took a job that is one of the non-traditional IR jobs out of training. Uh, it was a standalone private practice called MTVIR. Did that for a few years and ended up coming to sort of, I guess, a disagreement with the, the one partner and then moved back to Chicago where I'd actually done my residency and was an interventional radiologist with uh, North Shore Medical Group, kind of doing high-end privademia, if anyone's familiar with that word, in the North Burbs of Chicago. And then after about a year and a half, 
Uh, I found a couple jobs that I liked. We might get into that, but ended up uh, with a group that is an outpatient-based interventional radiology uh, group in the Southwest called Advantage IR. Uh, we have labs in uh, San Antonio and Austin, which I run. There's a lab in El Paso and uh, one in Scottsdale where the chief medical officer and corporate is. And uh, we're growing. We're looking to expand. There is, there's probably an opportunity in Omaha. We've got one guy that is uh, starting up a lab there. But yeah, in a growing outpatient interventional practice. Very cool. How many, so how many docs are at each? Are these, these are OBLs and ASCs, I guess? Yeah, they're OBLs. Uh, none of them are ASCs. There is typically one doctor at each OBL. I'm kind of covering San Antonio and Austin right now. But yeah, basically the model is there's one doc at each site and um, a chief medical officer that kind of fills in holes when we go on vacation, comes up with clinical practice guidelines. And, you know, he's, he was one of the founders. Cool. And what kind of cases are you guys doing out of these centers? Um, a lot of fun stuff. Uh, we do, I would say the majority of the cases are a mix of peripheral arterial disease that's good to treat in the OBL space, prostate artery embolization. Believe it or not, there's a lot of genicular artery embolization and then a little bit of some other MSK embolizations and then a little bit of venous embolizations too. So varicocele, pelvic congestion, we treat fibroids as well. Um, and then okay. there, you know, that's probably the majority of it. There's some one-offs that we do for people every now and then, but. Right. Ultrasound guided biopsies and whatnot, stuff like that. That's a hard <laughs> pass. <laughs> got it. Got it. All right. Well, thank you for that. So uh, on this topic, I wanted to get into some definitions. And so Patrick, you being the expert for our trainees and the uninitiated in the audience, can you quickly define some terms uh, that to kind of start the conversation. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about exclusive contracts and exclusive privileges? And then after that, talk a little bit about what not, you know, non-competes. Yeah, definitely. And, and I do want to, um, note here, I think this is a, an excellent topic, not only for those who are trainees, those coming out of residency, but even for established physicians, this is an area that is one that there's a lot of misinformation out there about. There's a lot of, of just basic misunderstanding as to these terms. So I do want to talk about privileges and exclusivity and then non-competes, but also some backdoor non-competes, uh, such as non-circumvention, non-solicitation. So, you know, if we start with privileges, this is, this is really um, the idea of the process by which a facility will evaluate and recommend practitioner to be allowed to provide specific patient uh, care services at a healthcare facility within a, a, a well-defined training criteria. So, you know, it, it is, I, I do want to differentiate between privileges and credentialing. Credentialing is actually the process to getting to privileges. Then the privileges, whether it's through the facility or through an employer that has facility, essentially is the sign-off on that you will utilize or have the ability to utilize the facility. When you get into exclusivity, you can see this across the board, whether it is a, an exclusive contractual arrangement for the delivery of care, whether it's exclusive privileges that you will only provide privileges at this particular location or with this per, uh, particular employer, 
the idea here is is that it is restrictive as to whom the the practitioner can actually contract with and provide services on behalf of and it is a, it is another way of essentially being a backdoor non compete because it limits your opportunities so you know and you'll see exclusivity actually whether it's in the terms of the relationship with the facility or through an employment arrangement, as I mentioned earlier. So, but exclusivity only lasts through the term or should only last through the term, unless you have added to that a non-compete. Okay. And this is, this is probably one of the, the, the area of non-compete is probably um, the one that there's the most confusion out there because it is a common misnomer of, of physicians that um, non-competes are not enforceable. And in reality, they are enforceable as long as they're properly structured and follow the law in the given state. So with a non-compete, it, it will be that the person during the term of the, of the arrangement generally some term thereafter cannot do anything to compete with, uh, with the party that they have contracted with. And it's not just from an employment standpoint or from a services standpoint, you cannot assist anyone that would be a competitor, you know, an owner, manager, consultant, it's anything that would be adverse to the person that you've entered into the non-compete with. So. With that, you have to be careful. Maybe you think, well, I will enter into this, but I just won't provide services to somebody else, professional services. Well, usually you're non-compete and many times your exclusivity will, will prohibit that from happening. But uh, the one thing that I, I always tell my clients is to presume that the non-compete is enforceable and then get with a professional, whether it's, a, whether it's an attorney that's versed with non-competes and especially those in the healthcare area, our consultant, uh, per, personnel consultant, somebody that has experience in the area, always tell them before they enter into the agreement, you have to focus in on that because that's your handcuffs to the person you're contracting with. In various states, you'll see that, uh, and, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but no one state's the same as another state. Yeah, You could be from... Well, like Preston said, from, you know, Wisconsin comes to Texas, goes to Illinois, and all of those have different rules as it relates to non-competes. Right. So just because it was acceptable and, you know, in another state doesn't mean that it's acceptable here. Yeah. That's a, that's interesting that you say that it's a common misconception because I remember when I interviewed from outside of Texas, people were telling me, oh, don't worry about non-competes in Texas. They're not enforceable. That you know, nobody can go after you in Texas, but I've seen people get in trouble with their non-competes here in the Dallas area. So I think that that's a good point to to let people know it is enforceable as long as, like you said, it's, I guess, as long as it's written plainly and, and that's your job as a lawyer is to help them determine, okay, what is enforceable and what's not. Yeah. There, there's, there's three basic elements as to non-competes that this will generally translate from state to state is that it must be reasonable in scope, so the area that it covers. For example, if you have a non-compete that says you will not practice medicine, well, you can see that that could be overly broad. You may decide to 
want to provide medical services for somebody that's not within the specialty under which you contracted. Um, So it has to be uh, uh, reasonable as to the area that it covers, the area of services. Also, it must be reasonable from a geographic position. You know, if you don't have offices all throughout the state of Texas, then uh, a non-compete that says you can't practice your given specialty throughout the state is probably overly broad. Yeah. And then finally, the third component. So we have scope, we have geographic uh, coverage, and we have timing, the length of the non-compete. How long does it last after your, your employment relationship or whatever the contractual relationship that you have as it relates to employment or exclusive services? How long that it, does it go? At least in the state of Texas, once you get outside of two years, it's most likely going to be not reasonable unless the employer, the person that is enforcing the non-compete, can show a justification as to why it should go further than that. But, you know, a year, 18 months, two years is generally what you're going to find in this area. Yeah. Yeah. Two years is what I've seen. Well, thank you. We, we kind of jumped in on competes a little bit more there, but um, Preston, I want to ask you, because you've been through a few jobs now, can you give some examples of how you know, you've seen these non-competes being enforced uh, in the real world and also the exclusive contracts? You know, what are some red flags for some other docs to kind of look out for uh, when they're either looking for their first job or maybe changing jobs? I would say, broadly speaking, the the smallest non-compete humanly possible that you can get your employer to sign um, coming from somebody who's just made the decision to like up and leave town uh, because, you know, I didn't want to get in an actual dispute. But um, if there's a, I've signed a goofy non-compete in the past, my first job out, I should have had Pat go over this and we can, maybe we can get to a, a point where I can give the story about how Pat and I met. It's related to privileges, but Anytime I see something that's outside of a single location and a radius, I would get a lawyer like, you know, because, and I would also just, even before getting a lawyer, talk to whoever you're interviewing with and just say, is this, why does my non-compete include all these things that are all over town that aren't really where I'm practicing? I mean, people can put whatever they want into a contract and after you sign it, that's basically the jumping off point. So getting all that, you know, getting all that stuff out there or out of it from the get-go is advisable. And I don't know if I want to call it a red flag, but I would be very suspicious of it. And then, you know, if if the non-compete includes any office that's within a certain company, you know, well, if you're not practicing at any of those offices, they they you they shouldn't be in a non-compete. Just re- thinking reasonably, you know, that's yeah. that's purely something that the company is doing just to look out for itself. So those are all things to kind of look out, but look out for. But if there is a place you're practicing at and they give you a reasonable radius around the non-compete, that's probably fine. I mean, every contract has something like that in it. Yeah. I mean, before you jumped on Preston, Pat and I were talking about some of the big groups here in Dallas. And the thing, you know, what they do is is the non-compete covers, I think, five mile radius from every location. And they have, you know, locations all over the DFW area. But if you're only credentialed at a few of those places, why should you be held to the non-compete for every single location in their footprint? Pat, how do you see that coming up for people who are signing new employee contracts and also trying to get out of their non-compete? 
You know, it's interesting over probably in the past five years, I have started seeing a lot more, um, arrangements with physicians that has just that, the, the, the circumstances that Preston described that it was okay. Five miles from any location where the practice provides services, whatever facility, uh, that the practice provides services and I'm seeing it more and do not know the reason why other than I think it is a way, my personal opinion is that it is trying to go to the, to the greatest extent to handcuff the physician because it gives, it gives that, uh, that, uh, that employer power over the position. So the physician can't simply up and, and, and move to another location that really doesn't have any connection with where they provided services, but it limits their options. And also I think that because going back to what I said on geographic area, you have to be able to justify what your geographic area is. Courts have the ability to reform a contract, especially in this area. So they can say, okay, well, not every office, but we'll do these particular offices and shrink that. Well, again, it gives, it gives the employer the ability to maximize even, uh, uh, the, the restrictive area, even if it was, you, you know, th that they probably got more than what they would have, would have said if they just said five miles from the place you provide primary services. And I do want to mention one thing here because we, we, you know, we've all mentioned a mileage radius. Hmm. That's not driving that, uh, the driving mileage that's as the crow flies. Mm -hmm. So you can drive around and think, okay, well, I'm going to go from this one facility to this next one. And you, and, you know, check your car and it says that it's five miles and you say, okay, well, I'm outside of it. But in reality, as the crow flies, it's like three and a half. Yeah. So I always tell physicians that before they agree to that mileage, actually go and look to see the direct mileage from one facility to another. It's, 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 it'll surprise you how many will get knocked out yeah. because of, of how the crow flies. Just real quick, since we're on this topic, have you noticed, Pat, any difference between academic centers like UT Southwestern, which also has a very big footprint and private practice in terms of how strict those non-competes are. I find in, in, in situations like that, they're, they're usually much stricter. UT um, or, you know, academic. Yeah. 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 Academics. Well, one, because they justify it by protecting all sorts of things, not only the facility itself, the academic institution, but advances that, that they may be making through an affiliated group also. And this is the danger that you get. Think about when you have three or four different attorneys that have reviewed an employment agreement or some type of an agreement and have an opportunity to add to it. Yeah. You get a bunch of attorneys in a room and they're all going to keep adding things. And, you know, attorneys are known to, to kill trees with papers. Right. Uh, right. So, um, but yeah, that's my, that's generally been my take is that they're much, that they're much stricter. Yeah. Well, I wanted to move on a little bit to the exclusivity of privileges and, and contracts with big diagnostic groups. Anything else to add to non-competes before we change gears a bit? Yeah, I, I would like to talk about two other backdoor ways of a non-compete. Yeah. Uh, one of them is a non-circumvention agreement that in your contract, it may not say that you can't, that there's, a, it doesn't address non-competes. 
but it says that you can't um, do anything to help a utilizing information that you have gathered in your capacity as an employee or having these privileges that you can't utilize that to harm the part uh, to harm that that party you've contracted with so you can't circumvent their rights now and that can extend not only from during the time period but afterwards and then non-solicitation agreements i have i commonly see more and more now where an, an agreement will have a non-solicitation, not only that you can't solicit our employees, vendors, whatever, but the facilities where we provide services. So again, that's a backdoor way of keeping you from going and providing services at another hospital lab, that type of facility. So even if there's not a non-compete in there, don't think that you're, uh, that you're, you're free from the shackles of restrictions because they can build those other types of back doorways in to uh, keeping you from uh, having as much freedom as possible to move somewhere else or to provide services to somebody else. Yeah. And re real quick, would you say that the likelihood of somebody enforcing a non-compete is maybe proportional to the size of the group or the size of the, the entity? Yes. I, I mean, in reality, if a group or entity does not enforce a non-compete the first time, the next time if they go to try to enforce it, they could be argued on the practitioner's part that they waived the non-compete because they demonstrated the first time when they didn't provide the cert or, or didn't pursue the remedies that they had, that they're really not harmed. Yeah. So. There's that issue, but also with that, and it's non-compete litigation is expensive. Mm -hmm. So much of it is within the first two to three weeks of when somebody attempting to, um, to enforce the non-compete files for the relief, files the lawsuit, because you look at temporary restraining orders, temporary injunctions, all of that. In a non-compete case, you really tried the thing in the first two to three weeks yeah. to get that, that type of relief. So a larger group, a larger employer will have the funds to do that. Right. Right. Smaller group probably won't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to get to maybe some, some, uh, suggestions you have for, for docs who are trying to get out of non-competes, but I did want to change gears just a little bit so we can talk a little bit about exclusive contracts. And so Preston, I wanted to ask you, as we mentioned, you've been in a few different practice styles. How do you see the exclusive contracts inhibiting these trainees coming out and joining practices? Now there's a lot more unconventional practice types like you're in currently that are actually becoming more conventional, right? The OBL setting, the 100% IR practice that's becoming more kind of mainstream um, and not, not so much of a minority anymore. How do you see that prohibiting people coming out of training and, and starting new jobs? Well, depending on the state that you're in, it is, I mean, it can be impossible. So there's some states to open up, you know, labs, um, depending on what the facility that you're in is, you have to have privileges somewhere. So yeah. to, it can be prohibitive of you even doing what you want to do. That's been my, you know, main issue with it. And then let's say that you're up and running you will most likely, unless you are a perfect interventional radiologist and never have any problems, you will most likely have run into a situation 
where you need some sort of inpatient services for your patient. And, you know, if you don't have hospital privileges, you kind of have to lean on somebody else. And depending on how good of friends you are with them or not, they, you know, will, I'm sure, take exactly the same care of the patient that they would in either way, but they may paint a certain picture, you know, as to what happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody's perfect. After you get out for a while, you figure it out. But hospital privileges are, they're basically essential to really any type of practice that you, that you are going to join. Even if it's strictly OBL based, you'll have to figure out what facility or what kind of relationship you're going to make to be able to quickly get patients to an inpatient uh, facility. That's ideally not an hour and a half on the other side of town or something like that, you know? Yeah. So like, what are you seeing out there? Have you seen any successful practice types where they're able to get around? Like, for example, you know, Blake Parsons up in Oklahoma, you know, his uh, collaboration with Jim Melton and those guys. Are there examples out there where it, it's been successful, where they've been able to get around these big radiology exclusive contracts? The, the answer is yes, but they're all, they all usually involve one person that had privileges there and a younger person joining them. Now, in, in, in sort of rural areas where there may not even be an interventional radiologist at some hospitals, you know, they just have diagnostic coverage that's contracted out, then you can get privileges somewhere. Once you get into an urban setting, and I mean, everyone who's coming, you know, coming out of an IR fellowship is presumably in an urban setting. If they're going to work nearby and they want to start up their own lab, they're going to find it very difficult to find any hospital within like 60 miles that has no interventional radiologist you can easily sneak into. Doing what Blake has done and finding a situation where you're developing some sort of business relationship with multiple specialties, that's very useful. Blake, um, I think he actually has privileges somewhere. I mean, Oklahoma is not the most you know, populated state. Um, he has some privileges by himself. Um, you generally need another interventionalist to sign on with you, same specialty. So he can't just say, oh, my partner's Jim Melton. You know, there's going to yeah. be someone who says that's, that's not, you know, following the bylaws of the hospital. But at the same time, Melton and him can trade patients. So he can, you know, Melton can have privileges somewhere um, or one of his cardiologist partners can have privileges somewhere and admit a patient and take care of them. You know, those situations are what I would call special. That's not something that you're going to find in most big cities. Every now and then you'll find independent vascular surgeons that are, are willing to help you out, but it's, it's usually not in a billing under a single tax ID type of situation. You know, they're, right. they're just kind of doing right by the patient. Yeah. So clearly, you know, these are some issues that need to be addressed considering the new IR residency training programs are, you know, much more clinically focused, um, set up to basically put IRs out there that are maybe not as geared towards just joining a big diagnostic group. So what are, what are there any, Pat and Preston, are there any solutions to this, like for, for the trainees coming out? I think that there has to be, there has to be like a, an actual change in the, the way that IR is, is viewed just among, among radiologists between, between each other, away from competing groups and more along the lines of a, a surgical subspecialty. You know, there are, I feel like I can't drive around Dallas without finding a new spine surgeon there's there's like a million spine surgeons in the city now they all are definitely competing to take care of the same group of patients but some of the single practitioners when they leave town you know they have to have coverage of another guy that's in another group 
and uh, they're all very gracious towards each other. Hmm. We as IRs need to need to adopt that mentality because right now it is the it's the complete opposite. You know, I, I mean, I moved up to Austin for the new job and I could not get an IR. Well, there's one guy. There's my my Surtex Proctor when I first got out. He picked up the phone, but any other IR um, that had privileges at a hospital that I would like to get privileges at, couldn't find them. It was just like, you know, crickets on the other end of every phone call I made. So that, that needs to change, you know, from a non, non-legal point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I would add to that, um, you know, from a contractual standpoint, again, I've seen this evolution over the past few years to where there are restrictions in the agreement with the employer that you will give up your privileges and that you're actually restricted from pursuing privileges at any location where you had them. Um, I think that that's something that you definitely want to push back on, but it's not the cure-all, as Preston just mentioned, that, you know, it, it's you're still going to have to have a collaboration. You're still going to have to have a recognition of the specialty and, and you know, um, those within that specialty on how to ad- address these types of things. But, you know, we can have various medical societies and, and the like that, that have ethical positions, but they really, I mean, those are just ethical positions. They're not law. Right. Uh, they're not binding. Right. Um, so. I think that you're uh, that Preston's exactly right. Is that you're going to have to actually have the, this this change in attitude to be able to recognize, you know, what is best for the patient is actually what's best for the provider, rather than well, let's look what's best for the provider and then the patient can get care where they can get care. I, I think you're going to have to have that change to be able to uh, solve that issue. Yeah. Preston, I know you recently spoke with the current SIR president on this topic. Anything that they uh, that SIR can provide? I did speak to Parag, and he he basically said we're we're working on it. We know it's a problem, and we're working on it. I mean, I when I moved up here, I tried to get privileges at several hospitals, and you know, in in just like a moment of frustration, went to Twitter and said, I'm so sick of like, wh- why am I paying these SIR dues when I can't even practice, you know, S- <laughs> interventional radiology? Uh, it just, this is making no sense to me. Well, SIR actually is, you know, they're, they are trying, they know this is a problem and they're trying to do something. Yeah. So it also involves the ACR. And I think the ACR is a little, they are sort of aware it's a problem, but they have a bunch of other things to worry about, you know, payment cuts on radiology right. procedures like that's that's what they care about and making sure that they're the only ones that are able to you know provide radiology services in the US. So that's where they yeah. put their money but you know we we've got different, you know, we just have sort of different priorities. There is a SIR position piece. We we could just I, I was going to talk about this later but we could talk about it right now. Pat alluded to this. It is sort of an ethical stance or position piece and it states that that SIR recognizes exclusive contracts between hospitals and radiology groups. But, and I'm going to paraphrase here, it, it says that it strongly believes that if there are services that are carved out of a radiology group, like lower extremity angiograms, uh, some sort of musculoskeletal intervention, and there is another type of physician that is allowed to perform that, such as a cardiologist, orthopedic surgeon, vascular surgeon, 
those privileges should be afforded to independent interventional radiologists. Now, you can take this position piece and you can show it to the people that I've showed it to or the CMO or CEOs of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And they may say, okay, well, we'll go back and talk to the radiology group. Or they may say, you know, we we don't want to anger. We don't want to ask the radiology group again if you can get privileges. They were vehemently against you getting privileges there. Right. Um, so it's, I guess, can be a little helpful, but it, it's not, it, it's not going to force anyone to do anything. Just politics or just pushing, 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 pressuring the, the executive, the, the hospital executives. I don't want to say that it's all about the money, but it depending, it depends on what the hospital's goals are. If it is a, a safety net hospital treating indigent care, uh, folks or you know, taking care of those issues, they may be happy to have you on. You also would think that a for-profit hospital would be happy to have you on. You know, every case that's not being done in a cath lab or every like open slot in a cath lab is a, that's a loss for them. They're just paying for the lights to be on. Right. So, so as soon as showed them, you know, we do 150 of these high reimbursing cases, we would love to bring them to your hospital. You know, they immediately see that that cath lab could go from in the red to in the black right? Um, fairly quickly. So that's pretty powerful. And then you also need a CMO to kind of push back against the radiology group and say, we guys know you, we know you have this contract. If you can match these numbers, great. If you can't, we're going to carve out a piece uh, right. in your exclusivity for someone. And the radiology group, you know, it's just kind of a political standoff. They may say, well, we're going to pull all of our coverage. Now you and I know that that would be crazy right. that no radiology group's going to give up. You know, they have no interest in losing that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But it, right. that's not how everyone's going to work. The right. CMO, regardless of what you say you're going to bring to the table, may just say, my lawyers like the, the language in this contract and we're not going to cut out anyone. And I mean, that kind of bring, this kind of brings, this brings up the issue that Pat mentioned earlier. These big groups have a lot of, they've, you know, they've got a lot of power and money behind them to create these contracts and enforce them or, or make your life difficult. And, and they may have enough weight to throw around to where the CMO of the hospital may say, I don't, I really don't want to anger, you know, yeah. for example, the only private radiology group in Austin, Texas, you know, I mean, there's one, so they can't, they can't make that group angry because that's who are they going to find to read every single radiology study in the hospital? I mean, that's an enormous hole to fill. So, um, I guess those are, those are a few things to think about when you're doing that. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. If I could jump in here, because yeah. I was probably remiss for not mentioning this earlier as to the legality of exclusive contracts. And for years, uh, the courts have looked at it and said that for the provision of, of certain medical services. For consistency, making sure that somebody is responsible for the right practitioner to be assigned to the right case for quality purposes, that exclusive contracts are legal. However, if they're entered into for, let's say, anti, uh, antitrust purposes, that they're trying to keep people from, from entering the marketplace, and, and that's, and that's a, a basis by which to do it. Even if you have these other elements, that can make that exclusive arrangement illegal. Mm. So I think that if you were going to a CMO, you're going to somebody at the hospital and you say that these are services that I can pro provide just as well, and maybe your current exclusive provider 
can't provide the services on a timely basis, or they don't have the, the, the necessary, uh, physicians there to provide a certain service. I think that that gives the hospital an out to carve those types of things. And if they won't, then I would want them to explain to, uh, to the, the practitioner that's trying to get that done. Why, right. you know, why won't, why can't we carve it out? Are you doing it for the reason why Preston said is we, you don't want to upset it down. Are they going to admit to that? Sometimes they will believe it or not, but from an exclusivity standpoint, that exclusivity and the impact on those that aren't part of that arrangement can be subject to attack in the event that that exclu exclusivity negatively impacts the, the delivery of, of medical services within a marketplace. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, s some of the language I've gotten back, um, is, uh, sort of legalese from the, you know, whatever, whatever hospital, uh, system I'm trying to get privileges at, they will say, because there's a lot of radiologists out there that don't do peripheral angio. I mean, they don't do prostates. They don't do knee embolizations, et cetera, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, the CMO will send me back, you know, there, we, there is an exclusive contract. There are exceptions for other people, such as cardiology or vascular surgery to perform very specific related radiology procedures, AKA an angiogram or, or right. whatever else. While a significant portion of this is performed by non-IRs, the IRs do this every now and then. So we're going to uphold this exclusivity clause. Basically, you have to decide how, how hard do you want to fight these people? Because the CMO, you know, and Pat, correct me if I'm wrong, that's always been the key person to kind of get on your side. Because if he doesn't, if, you know, if his kids play on the same basketball team as the, the head of radiology at the hospital, it's going to be really hard for you to convince the CMO to give you privileges when it's, when it's against the interest of his friend. Um, and that's just the, that's the unfortunate reality, uh, to this because it's, it's not like a better price on, you know, some tires that you're talking about here. These are, you're talking about people. So that's, that's like what everyone forgets and needs to be reminded of every now and then. No, Preston, you're right. That's the person you really need to have on your side. But when you get an explanation like that, well, these other specialists do this procedure and every now and then the IR will do it. Well, then they're essentially justifying that you should have the ability to, to be in there, right. that the, to expand that exception. And then you have to ask them, well, wouldn't you want an IR to do it if available? I mean, is it, you know, in certain circumstances, isn't it better care for the patient? Um, but you've already acknowledged that there is an exception. So why, what's the basis by not having somebody who is trained to do these types of things and better equipped to, to have access to do it? And it may put them in a, between a rock and a hard spot on trying to explain it. Yeah. Keep it in the specialty. I mean, it could be so much more collaborative if they kept it in the specialty. And instead, what if you were independent, the fact that you're a radiologist, the fact that you have radiology in your name and part of your training, that excludes you. And that's what's frustrating, I think. Yeah. We've, we've kind of let the, we've let things erode on all sides. Yeah. And we, we need to shore this up at some point. Yeah. I mean- I honestly never, I've never had a problem with who was doing what, as long as they are good at it. 
but as an IR, you're going to know that you're good at a couple of things. So yeah. it, it, you know, that's where it comes from. That's where my, you know, um, I guess I don't want to call it anger, but I'm looking for another word, <laughs> my ill disposition towards those, those, uh, bylaws of hospitals. Uh, it, it just, it doesn't serve the patients well at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks guys. This has been a great discussion. Any final thoughts from either of you before we finish up? Pat, I'll start with you. I would not be, I don't want to say scared, but apprehensive and pushing back, whether from an employer or a facility on things that restrict your, that the restrict your ability to practice medicine and in the location where you practice medicine. You may be surprised that they will give in, but more importantly, it will provide a basis by which, let's say, two years later, you're looking at a situation and they have committed to an interpretation of a clause of a provision that you can use in your, in your favor. And, you know, this, oh, well, don't worry about it. Uh, they send you an email. Don't worry about it. This is, uh, uh, this is, this is just standard, but we never enforce it or we'll work around it or what. Well, if they're giving you that type of verbiage, uh, then they're going to be hard pressed to then dig their heels in and say, oh, we never do that. We will never deviate from that. So from that position, I always will push back and you may actually get something out of it because it also exposes the flaws in the system. Uh, you know, like we said, what you want to have somebody who is trained in this doing it, and this is their, you know, frontline job rather than somebody else. They're going to have to be able to explain that. So always push back. And one thing, and Preston has heard me say this before, if you have an attorney that is, that you're working with or a consultant, let them be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. You have to work with these people for, you know, hopefully you landed a place where you're going to be for the rest of your, of your career. But you can always say, well, you know, attorneys, they're jerks, but they're just watching out for my best interest. So let the per let somebody uh, who is assisting you be the bad guy. So you're not the bad guy. Yeah. It'll go a long way. Yeah. Thank you, Pat. I'll quickly give the story about how I met Pat, because it has to do with sort of exclusivity and what Pat just mentioned, kind of a workaround. So in, in Fort Worth, there, there are many kinds of hospitals in, in Texas. They're like, you know, specialty spine hospitals that I feel like in other states, I don't, I don't see it much, but there's spine hospitals, cardiovascular hospitals, bariatric hospitals. It could just be that there are a million hospitals in Texas. But um, after getting denied at all of the, what you would consider normal comprehensive care hospitals, I started looking around at different facilities and I found an independent EP doc who was working out of a, a very nice cath lab in a spine hospital in, on the north side of Fort Worth. And tried to get privileges there for a year. They, of course, have all their imaging read out by one of the big radiology groups in Dallas. And that group said, no, we have interventional radiologists. Don't give those guys privileges. They, you know, we are contracted to provide those services. The hospital, I think it was the CNO, actually. The CNO said, you know, we're just looking back in on our files. You guys haven't ever per performed a single interventional radiology case at this hospital. And there they said, well, that's still, we have the exclusive rights to, to do that. And then he said, well, these guys are bringing cases to the hospital. What problem 
do you have with them doing this? And they said, oh, they've been denied privileges all over town. And then the nurse, the CNO said, yeah, it looks like you guys have, uh, according to them, you guys have been denying their privileges everywhere. Um, so eventually that, you know, like Pat said, if you kind of probe a little bit, the stupidity of the situation will start to kind of become the main theme of the conversation. And then you would hope that clearer heads prevail. So the anesthesiologist that I worked with at that place, once I figured out that I was going to have to leave that job, said, oh, you got to talk to my friend, Pat, who uh, he's a lawyer for physicians in the area. And then, then I met Pat and things have been rosy ever since. That's great. And to our audience, you know, uh, Pat is here in Dallas. Uh, so Pat, do you help docs all over the country or just in Texas? No, all over the country. I'm, I pretty much have healthcare providers from West Coast to East Coast. The majority of my work is with doctors in Texas and the adjoining states, but uh, not only, you know, so much in the healthcare world, a lot of it's federal law, the state law that if there was a, needed a state interpretation, have contacts with other healthcare providers in those states, or we can get somebody to serve as local counsel if need be. I'm working on a thing with a, a, a question in New York right now. And um, it was enough where I'd call up a, a colleague of mine that um, I've served on boards with through the American Health Law Association. And they were saying, oh yeah, this is this or this is that. But yeah, we're, we're all over the place. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to include your contact info in case anybody needs your, your help. That would be awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you to Preston and Pat for, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.